KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. My name is Matt Leon. We continue to see nationwide protests in the wake of the death of George Floyd, a call for an end to police brutality, a call for police reform. But how does that happen? What does reform look like? And are we truly in a moment of change with regards to policing in the United States of America? We wanted to talk about all this, so reached out to Terry Ravenel. She is an associate dean for faculty research at Villanova University's Charles Widger School of Law, also a full professor. She teaches civil rights, police conduct, and criminal procedure. Talk to her about a wealth of issues regarding policing. Really interesting conversation. Give a listen. Well, we are in the midst of kind of quite a moment here in American history as we have had now a couple solid weeks of nationwide protests. Now we're to the point almost across the board peaceful uh, and people want change with regards to how this country is policed. Do you think overall are we going to see, are we in a moment where we are going to see some systematic, significant changes uh, in the area of policing in the U.S.? Yes, I definitely believe we are at a moment where we will see systematic significant changes in policing in the U.S. Uh, I think that we are at a point where we see so many different entities and institutions looking for change. We see so many people demanding change that at this point, um, I'm very optimistic and truly believe that change is inevitable and that reform is inevitable. So give us an idea, give us some context. What are some things you think we will see right away? What are some changes that we will see departments or cities institute that uh, we should be on the look for? And kind of give us some context, what those changes would mean big picture. You know, I think that some of it's going to vary a lot from department to department. And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, with police reform is that the way that police departments are organized in this country is it's based on localities. And so, you know, what a police department looks like in rural Missouri is very different than what a metropolitan police department looks like in New York City. So, you know, that's that's one of the things that we have to think about is that it's hard to speak about uniform change because we're dealing with such different entities, even though they have this common denominator. Um, So I think that one of the things, particularly in larger uh, areas, larger, more metropolitan areas, uh, there's been a lot of talk. And we heard President Obama um, specifically say that the, the chokeholds should be restrained. Um, I'm optimistic that that is a very small change uh, that will happen. What the actual effect of that change will be is more difficult to predict. Back in 1983, um, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Lyons sued the city of Los Angeles and specifically asked that the LAPD stop using chokeholds because at that point they had it was it was a common commonly used technique and it had resulted in the death and injury of a number of people a large number of people and so the reason I sort of say that is we've known that chokeholds have been problematic 
you know, for going on uh, 40 years, departments have already banned them. Some departments have are starting to be more clear that it's not just about chokeholds. It's also the type of restraint mechanisms that were used against Mr. Floyd. Uh, but I think that's going to be one obvious change that happens. Now, there's so many ways that police use force that I don't know that removing one thing is going to actually result in a reduction of excessive force. I think we need something far more uh, broad that deals with excessive force as a whole, as opposed to specific techniques. What are some outside the box things, maybe things that you have thought of, things you've, you've heard from colleagues that you think if they were put in place, they could make a significant difference. When I say outside the box, I just mean things we don't hear people talk about on a cable news roundtable, stuff like that. You know, one of the things I talk about a lot in my classes, and I had mentioned before how there's differences among police departments. The one common departments is our constitutional standards, our standards under the U.S. Constitution. And so if we were to reinterpret what it means to be unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment, so what amounts to an unreasonable search or seizure, that could have a huge impact on the standards that all police officers are held to. And so, for example, right now we're analyzing whether officers' use of force was reasonable or whether it was excessive the way that the question's generally framed is, what would a reasonable officer do in that situation? Now, when we're talking about reasonable, we're really saying most of us would agree that what we should really be talking about is what would a well-trained officer do under those situations, as opposed to, you know, sort of what's the industry custom. And so I think that we really need to raise the the bar on what's what is required of these officials that have the ability to deprive people of life and liberty. I think that what we're seeing right now, you know, we have the Justice and Policing Act that problems with that in the Senate, at least for this this current regime. Uh, but I think that we really need to talk about big national changes that apply to everyone across the board. But the one I would like to see is I'd like to see um, us sort of reconceptualize how we understand the net meaning of reasonableness. How many of the problems looking at it from a police standpoint, our society, either by design or lack of imagination or lack of resources, we dump a lot of things into a police officer's bucket. Yes, there's enforcing laws and rules, but we also have them dealing a lot of times with the homeless. We have a lot of times they're dealing with people that are in mental crisis. And these really just don't seem like situations where you would want a police officer to be the first person or the front line to respond. How much how far could making changes with that go to helping to fix the overall problem? I think that that's a really important question. And I think that relieving some of the pressures that and responsibilities that police officers currently have uh, will do a huge 
service for all of us. The fact of the matter is, is that we have a number of sort of civil and social problems uh, in our society. And right now we really are using police as a major solution or as at least the first responder to those problems. And that really needs to change. Uh, There's a lot of cases where when police are sent to a scene because somebody is in a mental, having a mental crisis or a mental break, um, they don't, they haven't been trained in the same way that somebody who specializes in that has been. And I think, frankly, you know, while we can always talk about training police officers more, there becomes a point where it's sort of like, is this the best use of resources to continue to sort of train um, this one relatively small body of folks as opposed to spreading out the responsibility and really allowing people to specialize in a way. And I think that what most of us would agree, you know, you think about something like going to the doctor. Most of us might go to a general practitioner for diagnosis, but once we know what the specific nature of our problem is, we want to go to somebody who specializes in that problem. And I thought we have been asking police officers to perform far too many functions. It's like going to your general practitioner and then asking them to do open heart surgery on you in some of these situations. And while the analogy is not perfect, we need to do the same problems and civil problems. And many of these aren't criminal problems. And I think that's the other thing we have to recognize. There's been a a lot of talk and a rallying cry for a lot of the protesters has been this idea of defunding the police and I think if we've learned nothing in the last week, it's that defund the police means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But when it comes to the money that police departments get, is the problem the money or is it how the money, the money itself, how the money is spent? Is it a a training? Is it screening of people who want to be officers? Where do you on that kind of spectrum see the, the biggest problem? I think that it's hard to pinpoint the problem, as I said earlier in our discussion. You know, there's a lot of variation amongst police departments, and so it's difficult to speak about them uniformly. One of the things that I think is actually really uh, striking about, about George Floyd's death and his killing was that two of the four officers involved were trainees, and the fact that they were being trained by Derek Chauvin is one illustration of the problem. You know, I don't think that it's necessarily like training alone isn't enough. Screening alone isn't enough. Um, you know, it, it has to be, we have to constantly be reevaluating what's happening and what's being done. There's not one point in the system where we say, if we fix this point, we won't have any more problems. We've got to fix the entire system. So if we look at this through a political lens, if you're talking legislation, how do you see this being attacked from by Democrats? How do you see it being attacked by Republicans? And are there areas where you see the two sides have common ground that you think could accelerate any kind of change? Well, I think that everybody agrees that police violence is wrong. Um, I think everybody agrees that what we saw for that eight minutes and 46 seconds 
and the snuffing out of George Floyd's life was wrong. Now, where we move from that point of agreement is a lot harder. And I think that part of it is, is to break it down on local, state, and sort of national levels. As we move to broader audits, it's going to be harder and harder to find that sort of consensus. And part of that goes back to what I mentioned earlier, is that police have very different approaches um, when it comes to policing on these sort of local levels. I think that one of the advantages of police reform is that it can happen on a local level. I think that we're more likened agreement on these smaller bubbles of localities. It will be much easier to find consensus among policymakers in Philadelphia. Not that it'll be easy, but it will be easier than it will be to find consensus on something like the national level. And I think part of the problem is when we start talking about national is we have people who identify the problem differently. Then we also have people who have very different approaches to what the solution can be. So just on a national level, you know, you think about the fact that some people are going to say that this is a local problem and should be resolved by, by you know, cities and towns and municipalities, whereas you have other people who are going to want sort of a more federal approach and a more national approach. A term I was not familiar with until the last couple of weeks, but now we hear it awful lot, is qualified immunity. With regards to how we've kind of gotten to this moment, we have policing in the U.S. Explain to people what is qualified immunity. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's something it's a term that everybody should be really familiar with at this point. And while everybody's heard the term, it's important to understand what it means. It's really difficult to understand what qualified immunity is without understanding the larger context from which it emerged. Uh, And so. It's useful to know that qualified immunity is a very specific defense to civil claims for constitutional deprivations. So following the Civil War, Congress enacted a statute which is currently codified as 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. And what Section 1983 does is it allows a person like you or me to sue a government official when that government official has violated the Constitution. Now, there's some other elements that have to be met as well. But what's important to understand is that we're all familiar with the Constitution and the idea of constitutional rights. But when you look at the Constitution, it doesn't actually provide a remedy. So it doesn't tell you this is what happens when somebody violates your constitutional rights. So what Section 1983 does is it provides a remedy for constitutional violations. And it's a civil remedy. And again, anybody who's been deprived of a constitutional right can file this claim. And what you're basically saying is that this person was acting under color of state law and they violated the Constitution. And it allows the person to sue for damages, so for money. And it also, which I think is really cool about it, allows you to sue for injunctive relief. So not only can you say you harmed me in the past and so I'm entitled to monetary damages, you can also say um, you harmed me in the past and you're likely to harm to commit the same type of harm or violation. And so you need to stop engaging in this particular type of behavior. So it has an enormous potential to change uh, government behavior. Now, one of the things that happened eventually 
is as people started using the statute more, it was, like I said, it was a Reconstruction era statute. Uh, Although it was enacted in like the 1860s, it essentially went dormant until probably 1950s, 1960s. And at that time, as people started using it more and the court started interpreting it more, one of the questions came up that essentially came up was, is there a defense to these actions? Qualified immunity is a defense to these civil rights actions. And what it allows the the government official to say is, yes, I may have violated the Constitution, but I didn't actually know, and a reasonable person in my situation would not have known that this behavior was illegal. And because we didn't know this behavior was illegal, uh, we shouldn't have to pay monetary damages for it. And that's, that's what it means in a nutshell. What qualified immunity says is that if the law wasn't clearly established, then the person isn't going to be liable. They're going to have a defense or an immunity. And so one of the reasons that this is coming up so often is because so many of these civil rights cases are lost because of qualified immunity. There are so many times when the court says, well, yeah, there was a constitutional violation, but you know the person didn't know they were violating the Constitution, And so they don't have to pay and the case ends up getting dismissed. Or sometimes they won't even address the constitutional issue. They'll just simply say, well, it wasn't clearly established at the time that this conduct took place. So even if there was a constitutional violation, which we're not going to decide today, um, they're entitled to immunity. And so your case is dismissed. So it's the reason that a lot of cases are lost. And one of the arguments that people are making right now is that if police officers were actually knew they were going to be held personally liable for their constitutional violations, then they would be far more deterred from violating the Constitution. And so one of the concerns is, is that qualified immunity has become so powerful that in most cases, police officers aren't being Um, held responsible or personally accountable for when they violate the Constitution. And one of the arguments that's been made is that, you know, most police officers know how qualified immunity works. And they know, even if I violate the Constitution, I'm not going to pay for it. And so the, the thought is, is that if we eliminate the qualified immunity defense and start making police officials pay for their violations, then there'll be fewer violations. How realistic is making a change with that? And is that a legislative change? Is that a judicial change? Is that a uh, departmental change? Where, If there is to be some change or even elimination of that, where does it come from? That's actually a really interesting question right now. And for somebody who studies civil rights and qualified immunity like I do, it's especially interesting because the Supreme Court is currently... Um, waiting to accept cert or deciding whether to hear several cases that would decide the qualified immunity issue. So the Supreme Court has the ability to overrule itself. And because one of the things that's interesting about qualified immunity is it's not in the statute itself. It is a judicial, judicially created defense. So because judges created it, because the Supreme Court created it, 
they also have the power to eliminate it. So the Supreme Court could eliminate it if they hear one of these cases or they could modify it significantly. So there's a lot of us who are waiting to see what the Supreme Court will do with this. Um, the other way that this could be fixed, amended, eliminated is by Congress. And right now, actually, as part of the Justice and Policing Act of 2020, which was just introduced in the House, would actually eliminate qualified immunity. And we've actually seen Congress in the past make changes to the Section 1983 statute. And in that case, they actually extended immunities and specifically gave immunities to judges in certain situations. But we could see them do that in the opposite way and actually explicitly um, remove qualified immunity as a defense. So there's two different ways that this could happen. Another question that, or another way that I've seen discussed a lot is whether or not states or, lo- or local governments could basically say, police aren't entitled to qualified immunity anymore. The difficulty with that is arguably it's an individual defense. And so the state can't force somebody to give up their individual defense. So the the two most likely routes would either be Congress or the Supreme Court. Kind of bringing us back to where we started, if you and I talk a year from now, are you hopeful that we will have seen some significant changes or is this something that is almost like turning a battleship it just takes time to to get where you want to go i am very certain that certain communities will seize on the opportunities that are being presented to them and that we will see certain communities um have significant changes and a lot of successes And when you really view police departments on a sort of more individualized levels, you can see that police departments that are really interested in reform can and do reform. So they can do it. Do I think that we're going to see sort of nationwide changes? I think we're going to see a lot of individual police departments reform. It's much more difficult to, to sort of predict what's going to happen on a national level. What I will say, though, is that I'm very hopeful, but I think that we have to be very aware that our problems with policing are systematic, and there is not one simple solution. So many people are talking about qualified immunity right now. Even if we were to eliminate qualified immunity, we're still going to have a huge problem because, for example, even when police officers lose their qualified immunity argument and they're being held liable, they still don't pay. Most police officers are indemnified, which basically means that the police department pays their legal bills and any lawsuits against them. And so if we're thinking about this as a question of personal accountability, they're still not being held personally accountable, even if we eliminate qualified immunity because they're not paying out of their own pockets. So what's really important to understand is that there's not one quick solution to these problems. This is a systematic problem, and it's not just about civil litigation because qualified immunity also is just an immunity for one very small category of cases. We need to look at sweeping changes. We need to shift responsibilities 
from police departments to those to to other um, entities that are better equipped to deal with these problems. We need to make sure that police are being monitored and that we have the ability to hold them accountable. If we aren't gathering the appropriate data to actually identify wrongdoing, then we don't even know what problems we're trying to cor- correct. Um, we need to make sure that the training is there. We need to do things like break down the blue wall of silence so that when police officers engage in misconduct, um, that those who have seen it and know about it are required to speak up. So there are so, so many things that need to happen in order to see meaningful change. But what I also believe is that folks are able and at this point there's a willingness to make those sort of systematic changes that need to happen. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 